Well, if you will recall, last summer into late fall, we were in a series from the Gospel of John, the book of John. We had been studying chapter to chapter, and we ended up getting as far as right up to chapter 17. But then Thanksgiving and Christmas came upon us, and and I paused that study in order for uh, us to bring it back up again in the spring and work our way into the crucifixion and the resurrection of Easter Sunday. And as you're going to see in a moment, our scripture reference uh, for today actually happens on the night of Jesus' arrest. So we are indeed working into the Easter story. And I'm excited to be able to finish what we started as we continue to study what I believe to be one of the most important books in the entire Bible. And the reason I say one of the most important books in the entire Bible is because when you study the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tend to cover many of the same miracles and events of Jesus' life and ministry. But what you will find in the book of John is his constant focus on who Jesus is. While the others tend to emphasize the signs and the sayings of Christ, John emphasizes the identity and the divinity of Christ. And John makes it clear in his gospel account that this is his personal testimony about his relationship with Jesus. And I happen to believe that John's gospel is the most engaging of them all, and I believe that it is powerful. So I'd like you to turn, if you will, to John chapter 17. While you're doing that, let me explain what we are going to read today is a prayer. It's a prayer that, in my humble opinion, could be titled, The Real Lord's Prayer. I say that knowing full well that the prayer that we refer to as the Lord's Prayer is the one that is found in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But when you look in depth at that prayer that I just quoted a portion of, in reality, it is a guideline for our prayer. What I mean by that is that Jesus would never ask like he does in the Lord's Prayer for his trespasses to be forgiven because he was without sin. So in my mind, that prayer could more accurately be referred to as the disciples' prayer. This prayer that we are going to read today, in my mind, is truly the Lord's Prayer because it was prayed by Jesus himself on the night that he was arrested. Most people believe that he prayed it in the temple court while he was looking up toward heaven. And what you'll see in a moment is that the first few verses, Jesus prays for himself, but even those words are are an intercession for you and I. Because in those verses, Jesus asked God to glorify his son by using the soon-to-occur crucifixion for its glorious intended purpose. Specifically, Jesus prayed that his death on the cross would satisfy our sin debt and that that would make possible for us to be forgiven, to know God, and to have eternal life. And I want you to really think about that for just a moment. One of the most encouraging experiences that you will have as a believer in Christ is to be prayed for 
by another believer, especially when they utter that prayer in your presence. I had two ladies from our church come into my office this week and lay hands on me and pray for me, and I can tell you that that is powerful and that is true. So when we read our text today, that feeling that I'm talking about should be greatly magnified within us. I say that because on the night of his arrest, just hours before he was going to be crucified, the most horrendous way a human being could die in that day, Jesus prayed for you. And he prayed for me. And I think that's incredible. Knowing what he was going to face that he thought of us. In fact, the Bible teaches us that he is still praying for us even now. Hebrews 7.25, therefore, he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Robert McShyan once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So with all that in mind, I wanna read our scripture. You can follow along on your Bible if you have one. If not, it will be up on the screen behind me. John chapter 17, it's gonna be a big chunk of scripture, verses one through 26. I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you haven't who you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. He's speaking of Judas there. I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world 
any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that they love you, that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus was pretty eloquent, wasn't he? So eloquent, it's kind of hard to read. Not the way I talk. Did you happen to catch the main themes at all within that prayer? After asking God to glorify himself through the cross, Jesus primarily prayed two main things that I want to discuss this morning. And the first thing that Jesus prayed for was that we would not be separated. Look back at verse 15. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It is this part of his prayer, Jesus was, was alluding to the fact that this fallen world is a dangerous place for Christians. We are living in enemy territory, in case you haven't noticed. And I've said this many times before, but this world is not our home, ladies and gentlemen. It is not our home. And the sooner you realize and you grasp this truth, the better off you're going to be. Our home is in heaven. We are simply visitors on this earth carrying around a passport until which time we are going to be reunited with our heavenly father. And no doubt because of this fact, Jesus mentions our need for God's protection, not once, not twice, but three different times. However, he, he also pointedly asked God, he, he asked God that so that he would keep us in the world, to protect us, but keep us in the world. Yes, he prayed for our protection, 
in order that we could stay where we are and do the work that he has called us to do. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, recorded an interesting story about Alexander the Great. He writes that in his great campaign toward world domination, when Alexander marched from modern-day Turkey to Egypt, he laid siege to many different cities, and he conquered many lands in between that, and how his path to Egypt took him down a narrow uh, land bridge between the Mediterranean Sea and the Arabian Desert, a land ruled by Jerusalem. Israel was a choice place for anyone wanting to control trade with Egypt. And no one knew this better than the Jews. So these citizens, they, they trembled at the thought of chariots racing south to plunder their beloved Zion. The high priest at that time was a man named Jedua. And he fell to his knees before asking God, for guidance. He wanted to know how he could defend the defenseless people of Israel. You see, the walls of, of Jerusalem were, were crumbling with age. Besides, no one dared stand against Alexander the Great. So in an answer to his prayer, the Lord led Jedua to decorate the city and to open the gates. God also told him to have every person who was going to go out and greet Alexander's army to be dressed in white while the priests wore their vestments of their order. Well, as Alexander's army moved closer to Jerusalem, Jadua led a procession of priests and greeters northward to meet them. The high priests wore purple and scarlet garments as well as a headpiece, which wore a golden plate, and engraved on that golden plate was the name of God. He stood his ground as the dust from that enormous army darkened the sky. And when the Greeks came within sight of the Jewish procession, Alexander stopped his march, and he dismounted, and he stood before the high priest. And then he worshiped the name of God, something that he had never done before. According to Josephus, the conqueror had a vision prior to coming here of people dressed in white, the priests and the name of God etched in gold. So upon his arrival in Jerusalem, Alexander offered a sacrifice to God per Jadua's instructions and he treated the Jews with great kindness. Then Jadua opened the word, the ancient scroll, to the prophecy of Daniel. In our modern day Bible, it would be chapter seven and eight. And there he showed Alexander the then 200 year old prophecy predicting Greek dominion over the Western world. And when Alexander the Great read this, he was thrilled. Even though he was known as a man of dark moods, Alexander was rejoicing in that moment. And he promised at that time to put a perimeter of protection around Zion and to allow the Jews to retain their law. Alexander, having seen himself in the written scriptures, was deeply affected by that experience. 
Now, I know that was a long story to tell you, but I want to make a small point. In essence, the same exact thing is happening to us today. When we see ourselves being prayed for by Jesus in the scriptures, a prayer uttered over 2,000 years ago for our protection, then just like Alexander, this should greatly excite and encourage us to no end as we seek to be salt and light in this very dark world. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, we can be bold because of what Jesus prayed. We know this because of his intercession for us on that night. God has a perimeter of protection surrounding us, protecting us from from temptation and allowing only those difficulties to come through that are for our good or ultimately for his glory. So knowing this, knowing that, that Jesus prayed this prayer for your and my protection, that should encourage us never to withdraw from this world. It should encourage us not to separate ourselves from people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's face it, it's important that we hear this part of Jesus' prayer because separation, ladies and gentlemen, has always been a great temptation for Christians. And this is, the, this is the idea where monasteries and nunneries came from. The thought behind those cloistered institutions was to protect ourselves from the influence of this evil fallen world in which we live. So we literally built up a wall. Well, in Jesus' prayer, he reminded us that we don't need a wall. We don't need to protect ourselves because God's already taken care of that. He will protect us. And this should, in fact, encourage us. And furthermore, it should embolden us. Because if we're not careful, Christians like you and me in the 21st century can start living our lives like we're in some kind of a monastery. The reason I say that is because we often arrange our lives so that we are not around unbelievers. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, small groups that are the same. Many read primarily Christian books. Many Christians send their kids to Christian school or they choose to homeschool them. And we listen a great deal of time to Christian radio. And don't get me wrong, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves because it's good for Christians to come together. I encourage you to do that. And we should read Christian books and we should listen to Christian music. But here's the point. We can do these things so much that we actually isolate ourselves within a sort of a Christian subculture. And it's not at all what God had in mind for us. Author Rebecca Pippert wrote about the temptation to do this kind of isolation on college campus. She writes this, we must not become, as John Stott puts it, a rabbit hole Christian. That kind that pops his head out of a hole, leaves his Christian roommate in the morning and scurries to class only to frantically search for a Christian to sit by an odd way to approach a mission field. 
Thus he proceeds from class to class. When dinner comes, he sits with the Christians at his dorm at one huge table and he thinks, what a witness. From there he goes to his all Christian Bible study and he might even catch a prayer meeting where the Christians are praying for non-believers on his floor. But what, lu- but what luck that he was able to live on the only floor with 17 Christians. Then at night, he scurries back to his Christian roommate, safe. He made it through the day, and his only contact with the world were those mad, brave dashes to and from Christian activities. What an insidious reversal of the biblical command to be salt and light. Listen, no matter what your age, no matter what stage in life you are at, whether on campus or whether off campus, we are all susceptible to this. Someone once said, it is possible to go from the womb to the tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with Christian fish stickers. Let me put it this way. It is possible for us to abandon our culture to the enemy. I'm done. I'm done. This world is so far gone. Ain't nothing we can do. It's your problem to deal with, Lord. I'm going to isolate myself, and I'm going to count the days until Jesus comes. The mindset is, I'm just going to ride this out. I'm just going to kind of exist. While instead, I think we all seriously need to ask ourselves, what can I do in the time that I have left to bring other people into the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the hope that that brings to me personally? We cannot be so focused on the end, ladies and gentlemen, that we forget about the here and now. We got work ahead of us. This is not time to throw in the towel. This is not time to put up the white flag. We have work ahead of us. And I'm aware that things are tough in this world. And I'm aware that they are only gonna get tougher. Hope that doesn't depress you, but that's a reality. But it's important that I point that out to you. And here's something you need to know. Even though Moses and Elijah and our good old friend Jonah that we just stopped talking about last week, even though they asked to be taken out of the world, none of those requests were granted by God. This is not the time to stop and wait until the end comes. Worrying about how and what that that might look like. This is a time for us to engage individually and as a church into the Great Commission and take seriously our responsibility to lead other people to the cross of Jesus Christ. So I think we need to honestly examine ourselves and our actions and our mindset and our attitudes. Have we functionally removed ourselves from the world? Well, if so, if that's the conclusion that you've come to, then you must remember that Jesus prayed on the night of his arrest that we would not do that. What about you? Is God leading you to answer his son's prayer in some way, shape, or form? I mean, how many non-Christians do you have as friends? Are you in contact in any way with the world that's outside of this building? I'm talking about that little part of the world that is your own personal private mission field. We all have one. You're not gonna change the world, but you have the ability to change your world. 
You have the ability to change that circle of influence that you have. Remember, Jesus prayed that we would not pull away from the world. And he also prayed that we would not be separated. But then there is a second major theme that Jesus touches in his prayer. And it is that we would be unified. In fact, four times in this scripture, Jesus asked his father to help to keep his followers then and now unified as one. Why would Jesus make this a priority in his final prayer before going to the cross? Well, the answer to that question is found in verse 22 and 23. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, ladies and gentlemen, our unity and love for one another creates belief in the heart of non-believers. Because oneness is, is such a rare thing to find in our world today. It literally draws people like an insect being drawn to a bug light. Max Licato wrote this. He said, how will the world believe that Jesus was sent by God? Not if we agree with each other. Not if we solve every controversy. Not if we are unanimous on each vote. Not if we never make a doctrinal error. But if we love one another. So the key to experiencing and displaying this caliber of unity, this caliber of love, is our relationship with God through Christ Jesus. I mean, the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we are going to get with each other. The deeper our relationship with the Lord, the deeper our love relationship will be with other Christians and other people. A.W. Tozer wrote this, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. I love Tozer's illust illustration because the more, as I said, we are in tune with God, the more we are gonna be in tune with each other. Our unity, our godly relationships literally draw people to Jesus. But the opposite, fortunately, is, is true, unfortunately, is true as well. Paul Bilheimer wrote this, the continuous and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. Thomas Manton put it like this, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Think about that for a minute and do a quick soul search. Could it be that an argument from your past or present that exhibited unloving behavior toward a fellow Christian has literally pushed someone away from Jesus? That's a staggering thought when you think about it. You see, if unity was a priority in Jesus' prayer, then it's got to become a priority in our individual lives. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
We have to understand just how important Christian unity really is. We need to be on the same sheet music with Jesus on this one. We need to realize that our unity or lack thereof has eternal implications for people in this world, people that are around us. And this means that we need to look at quarreling and we need to look at gossiping and slander and other things that damage unity as believers as a real scandalous thing. The truth is, we are upset by moral failures on the part of other believers. And a further truth is, some have kind of a, almost a perverse uh, attention towards that kind of thing. They seem to be looking for, and I'm talking believers, are looking for other believers to fall. And yet, most of us don't ever think about fellowship failures. We are not scandalized by a lack of love. And yet Jesus is. Love was and is his supreme value. And if he is truly the Lord of our lives, then, then it has to be our supreme value as well. So with that in mind, I want to read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. It'll be up on the screen here. It says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In these verses, Jesus is giving us several basic principles when it comes to preserving unity within the body of Christ. And I wanna share a few of them with you and they come from John Ortberg's book called Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. And the first principle is this, we must acknowledge the fact that conflict happens. It does. That's part of what Jesus was getting at when he said if a brother or sister sends, sins against you, go and point out their fault. In this fallen world, even among Christian brothers and sisters, people are going to sin against each other. Conflict is going to happen. In fact, we could rephrase the first part of that verse instead of saying, if your brother or sister sins against you, it probably should say when your brother or sister sins against you because in, in, in any relationship, even between fellow Christians, conflict will occur. Part of living in this fallen world involves being in sinful conflict. People disagree, people fight. Sometimes they fight a lot. Sometimes they fight a little. Sometimes they, they fight constructively and sometimes they fight destructively. Sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. Sometimes the fight ends well, sometimes the, the fight ends poorly, but conflict is going to happen on this side of eternity. That's why it's important for us to understand exactly what Jesus prayed about because many of us pretend that conflict doesn't exist. But that's not true. Even mature Christians like Paul and Barnabas had disagreements. You can read about it in the scriptures. In fact, sometimes I think a lack of conflict comes from apathy. I'm talking about Christians who don't care enough about absolute truth to ever go out on the limb and to defend it 
or can be due to the fact that we care more about peace than we do truth. And that happens when we don't love a brother or sister who has fallen enough. We don't love them enough to confront them and, 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 and to help them to repent and to return, help to return them to the center of God's will. In any case, we shouldn't be surprised when conflict comes because there will be times when godly people disagree. And I, for one, think that we actually grow closer together as church members and friends whenever we lovingly work to resolve an issue between us. Because when handled correctly, conflict can actually deepen our relationships. It can actually deepen our friendships. The second principle I wanna share here is everyone must own responsibility when it comes to resolving the issue. If community is to be restored, then everyone involved must take responsibility in, in resolving the situation, both the person who has done wrong and the person who is, has been wronged. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that if a brother or a sister sins against you, we should take the responsibility to go to them and explain how they have hurt us. And this is good guidance because often people hurt us without even knowing it. Which means if we don't go to them, things will never ever be made right. You'll just carry, on to, you'll just carry and hold on that offense for the rest of your life. But please note that Jesus also taught us that the person who does the wrong should take responsibility. In Matthew 5, 23, 24, Jesus said, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus taught that both the sinner and the sinny, is that a word? The wrongdoer and the wrongdoee, they both must take responsibility. He taught this because in a church community, oneness is just that important. And we show that we believe it is important by taking the responsibility to deal with relational breakdowns. And this leads me to the third principle. Approach. Don't avoid the person you were in conflict with. Jesus says, go to the person, take action, don't let resentment fester. We don't do that very often, do we? We try to avoid people that we have conflict with. And the one reason we do that is because it's a whole lot easier just to sit back and pout. Plus, if we go to them, and it should happen to get ugly, we don't like to deal with ugly. What I mean is your confrontation might not go so well. But we shouldn't let that stop us from dealing with the elephant that's in the room. After all, avoidance, it will kill community in any organization, particularly in the church. Avoidance causes resentment to fester. That wound gets uglier. It gets infected. Pretty soon you lose your arm from a cut that's on there, and then you lose your shoulder, and it starts to eat away at you. And I think it's best to take some time to first cool down and prepare. To prayerfully gather our thoughts before we approach that person. Proverbs 14, seven, the first half of that verse says, a quick-tempered person 
does foolish things. You ever been there? Yeah, me too. So we need to calm down first because anger causes us to behave foolishly. It causes what therapists refer to as cognitive incapacitation. In other words, being mad prevents us from thinking straight. Someone once said, when your inner gauge reads red hot anger, you should always delay your response. And I agree with that. I was talking to someone the other day. I said, man, we got to implement a 10 or a 20 second rule. When you know, when you feel your ears getting hot, that's what happens to me when I get angry, my ears get red. So if you ever see my ears red, you know I'm about ready to blow. That's what I've been told anyway. I also have a funny look on my face. I hold my mouth kind of weird. My wife knows it. My daughter knows it. They point it out to me often. I'm <laughs> sorry. I don't know where I went off on that tangent, but we are to go. You got to cool down. The longer that you wait, the bigger the problem becomes. Here's the fourth principle. This can be summarized in three words. It says no third parties. This is a big one, folks. In other words, you go and you go directly to the only person involved and you clearly explain the issue at hand. Now that's the last person that most of us wanna to go to. Instead of going to the person to whom we have the problem with, we prefer going to someone else. And the reason we do that is so we can get that someone else on our side. We can get them supporting our, heart, our hurt feelings and agreeing with us that we have every right to be sore about this thing. It's kind of like NATO building a coalition against uh, Putin after the invasion of Ukraine. We gather nations together and we stand against that individual. Now this is a bad example because we're talking war here and I'm talking about a relationship with another believer. But we go to other people and we seek allies before we attack. And I confess to you that I have done that before. And why do we do that? It's simple, because we wanna win. It's bred into us from a childhood. We're Americans, man, we wanna win at everything. No one likes to lose. That's the way we are when we are wrong. We wanna win. So we go to everybody but the person who has wronged us. We get lots of people on our side, but in doing that, we are disobeying Jesus' command that we are to go to that person by ourselves. Now I can understand going to a godly man or woman who doesn't know this person that you have conflict with and seeking advice and wisdom of how you might go about approaching that individual, someone who could offer you a more Christ-like perspective, even if it means helping you to see yourself in the mirror. Because a true friend will try to give you both sides of the story. They're not gonna say, you're right, go. They're gonna say, but you know, as I see this, I think you need to work on this as well. My daughter's teaching me all this through her communications classes at college about uh, conflict and how to do it. But the principle that Jesus is showing us here is to limit the damage of conflict. You don't have to build a coalition of allies to go with you. That's not the way you go about this. Paul said in Philippians 4.2, he's talking to two women in the church. He said, I plead with Euodia and plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. We are not aware of exactly what the problem was between these two women, but these were, two women were disagreeing about something. Maybe it was who had the most unusual name. I'm not sure. 
Those names are weird names, boy. Can't imagine naming my daughter Sintich. But I think it's interesting to note that, that Paul doesn't advise here. He doesn't say, Yodia, uh, talk to some other people about how unfair Sintich has been to you. Thoroughly discuss her character flaws with other people and her neuroses so that others can pray for her more diligently. He doesn't say that, nor does he say, hey, uh, Sintage, let three or four of your closest friends know how Euodia has mistreated you so they can reinforce your self-righteous sense of martyrdom. No, he says, I plead with you to agree with one another. You see, going only to the person limits the damage just between the two of you. It also produces potential, potential misunderstandings, and it preserves the unity of a relationship, and sometimes that unity of that relationship can affect the unity within the body. In fact, Jesus says that only after dealing with this one-on-one, only after that has not worked, do you bring in a third party. But even when you do that, it's not to, it's not to, to run them down, it's to say, here's the issue, How can we work through this? That's when you bring in a third party. Well, here's the last principle. We are to aim at reconciliation. Remember what he said in the last part of verse 15? He said, if they listen to you, you have won them over. You have a friend back. You see, the goal in conflict, resolving situations like this, is not to win or score points. The end game should always be reconciliation. Your aim should not to be to to run somebody off, but rather restore that relationship. When we disagree, we should let our love for each other and our understanding of how precious unity is to compel us to work through the issue. This is where many of us fall short. We don't always aim at reconciliation. We don't always work for peace. We just want to go to war. We put the paint on and we want to go to war. Well, Jesus says our goal in situations like this must always be to win a brother or a sister back. And as I'm preaching all of this, I want you to understand something. I have been so extremely blessed in my time here at High Point Assembly because there has been so little conflict for me to have to deal with. As a presbyter of our section, I talk to pastors regularly. And I'm telling you, I cannot believe the amount of conflict that goes on in some of our churches. It grieves me when I hear of what some of these pastors are having to deal with. And and admittedly, some of them have made big mistakes and, and they have every right for people to be upset with what they've done. I'm sure you've been upset with things that I have done. But you know, we've worked, we've worked through them. And that's the important thing here. So in one sense, this message that I'm bringing to you today is what my pastor used to call a preventative maintenance kind of a sermon. I'm not speaking this to you because I think we have disunity in High Point. In fact, I would say just the opposite. I agree with Anthony. I believe our church is going somewhere. God is on the move in this place. He's on the move in people's hearts. We're growing after COVID. People are coming back. We got so many new faces in here. And I'm sorry if 
If I don't know you, I apologize. It's going to take me a while. I'm not the best with names, but gosh, there's so many new people coming to our church. It's an, ex it's an exciting time for us. But I've been blessed. And, and this is, I'm not preaching this because I think we got issues going on in this church. But then again, I don't, all conflict doesn't always come back to me. Do you understand this? Sometimes I'm the last person to know. Isn't that funny? I'm the pastor of the church, and finally, after people have been talking about something for three months, somebody finally says, oh, by the way, pastor, did you know that this happened? I said, well, I'm glad you told me three months later. <laughs> Based upon life in general, even though I do not have any conflict that I'm aware that we're dealing with here as a body, I'm sure that for some of us here this morning, or for some of us who, who are watching online, maybe even right now you're involved in some kind of a personal conflict. I don't need to know that unless you want to share it with me. Uh, if it's within the body, then I, I do want to know that because I want to do anything that I can do to help. But if that applies to you, then I encourage you to turn on that mental microphone right now and talk to the Lord about this situation. You, you can't sweep these kinds of things under the rug and expect that they're going to go away. Because as I said, they will only fester. And you are only punishing yourself. When you carry around an ought for a brother or a sister, when, you, when you're carrying around a, a, a hardship or, 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 a, or a, a misunderstanding with someone else, and you don't take care of it, it will eat you alive. And let me warn you against something else. It is not appropriate and proper at all for you to carry an ought for a brother or sister. I've seen Christian people turn on another Christian when that Christian did nothing to you, but you're supporting your brother or your sister. Well, if he said that or if she did that, then she's not my friend anymore. It's so childish. It really is. And you know what? We're redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but we're not perfect. And we make mistakes. And we say things we shouldn't say. We say stupid things we shouldn't say. I do it a lot in humor, and it comes back and haunts me. I say things off the cuff to be funny, and I go, why did I say that? <laughs> Commit to go to that person or persons that you're having a conflict with, your spouse, your parent. It's a big one. Adult children to adult parents. A lot of conflict. A lot of hurt. A lot of anger. You gotta let that go. You've got to forgive. You've got to move on. Go to that child. Child, go to your parent. Go to that employee. Go to that boss. Go to that coach. Go to that board member. Go to that pastor. Tell them that they've been hurt. Give them an opportunity to make good on what they've done to hurt you. You do what you have to do in order to keep peace. Resolve the conflict. Commit to being a part of answering Jesus' prayer that he prayed for you that night. Work to restore, to deepen the unity here at High Point Assembly and in your personal life. Nick, would you come forward? I'd like everyone to stand to your feet if you would.
But I also want to just talk briefly about the other part of Jesus' prayer. Is God leading you to answer that as well? Is he convicting you of your need to quit separating yourself from lost people? Well, if he has, then you need to take it to the Lord. You need to take it to the Lord in prayer, just like this other issue that we're talking about. We've already had a time at the altar this morning, so I'm not going to call you up to the altar, but I wanna close this service in prayer. And I wanna pray, but I'd like you to join me in prayer for continued unity among us here at High Point. But I also want you to pray that we would stand in unity with other believers who attend other churches in our community. As we all know, the reason that there are so many different denominations in Christianity is generally based upon scriptural interpretation. Some take scriptures literally, some take them figuratively, and based on that, they come up with a theology, and if you're a Christian that feels more comfortable with that theology, you will tend to go to that church. And, 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 and what it tends to do is it builds up barriers even between us and Presbyterians and Catholics and, and everybody else because we think we're right and, and they think that they're right and we all think that the other people are wrong. So it's very important for us to pray for unity within the, the, the body of faith here within our community. They are your brother and sister in the Lord. We may not agree with them on everything that they believe scripturally and I know they certainly don't agree with us on everything scripturally, but there is one thing that binds us all together and that is the blood of Jesus. If you are a part of the Christian faith, you believe that Jesus died on the cross and his blood, his shed blood atones for our sin. It's what covers our sin. It's what offers us salvation. It's what gives us eternal life. We all agree on that. So we have a common ground. So as we pray for unity within High Point, I wanna pray for unity within the churches here in our community. Because the only way we're going to win this community for Jesus Christ, High Point cannot do it. We can do a lot, and I hope and pray we continue to. But we're going to need the help of all the churches in this community. Too many churches with empty seats, and we need to win them for Christ. So I want to pray that you would have the courage to be active in this world by not separating yourself and truly being salt and light to our community. And secondly, I wanna pray that we would stand unified as brothers and sisters in the Lord so that we can bring others into the fold because our love and our unity is so attractive that it draws them to us. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, I thank you for the book of John. Thank you that we can get back into this. I love this book, it teaches us so much. And this prayer that we have read today and kind of dissected is such a powerful prayer. It is the heart of Jesus towards us. You love us so much, Lord. You gave us everything. And now I know it is your desire, Lord, that we would take that which you have given us and we would not hold it tight and not share it, but that we would share it with the world around us. 
And Lord, I talk about this a lot, and I, and I know maybe some people get tired of hearing it, but I just want to say that the Great Commission, Lord, was not a suggestion on your, ha- your behalf. It was a command. You expect us to be light and salt to this world. I pray for those who are actively be- being salt and light, but I also pray for those who aren't. And I pray that you would give them the courage to go out, step out in faith, take a risk, talk about Jesus to someone who knows him not, get involved in their life and bring them to the cross of Jesus. Father, let us not isolate ourselves. Let us not be afraid of what's out there in the world, but let us care enough and love enough to wanna share with them the goodness that we have found in you. And secondly, Father, I pray for unity continued unity in this body of believers. There should be nothing that separates us. And Father, I pray that we would not wear our feelings out on our sleeves and let little things offend us because the world is very offended by today. Everyone's offended about something. Boy, one way we could be separate from this world is to not be offended by anything. And we have no need to be offended because we serve the living God. We serve a risen Savior who has promised us eternity when this time on this earth is done. Whatever that looks like, however it ends, and we can see in your scriptures how that happens. But God, pray that you would keep us unified, looking towards the same goal, and that is heaven in your presence, but not just for us, but for our families, for our friends for our work associates, for our relatives. So give us the courage, Lord, to open our mouths and to speak of your goodness to others. I thank you for my church family. What a blessing they are to me and my family. I thank you for the spirit of unity that we have. We are focused on one goal, and that is to worship you and to bring others into the fold. And I pray that you would bless and honor our efforts even the smallest of efforts, God, that would produce fruit, that we would continue to grow, that we would continue to see the lost saved, that we would see people who are sick be healed, people with addictions and strongholds being delivered, and living a life that glorifies and honors the sacrifice that Christ made for us. So as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would be designed to build people up and not tear them down, and that we would shine like bright lights in this dark world, so much so that people couldn't help but notice they would be blinded by your love that shines through us, and they would be compelled to say, what is it about you that is different? And then that door opens and we share your goodness. I pray as I have many weeks now, Father, Give us all a divine appointment this week to share your goodness with someone else and use us mightily in that endeavor. Keep us safe till we gather together again together next week. Keep us safe from sickness, from accidents, from disease, and help us to walk in the boldness of your spirit. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.